Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant. Um, this week on the Righteous Remnant podcast, we're going to be talking about unity in the church. I think this is one of the most important issues of our times. I mean, it's really one of the most important issues um, throughout history, but man, it is so important for our times. And, um, you know, I could say as somebody who's been a leader in the church and a pastor for, you know, 15, I've been pastoring for like 15, 16 years, something like that, and, you know, involved in leadership for a bit longer, I could tell you that um, the church is so divided right now. Um, we have divided over so many different um, minor doctrinal issues. We divide over, you know, offenses that never get healed. We divide over slight differences in the way that we pray or the the scriptural truths that we emphasize. Or, man, there's just so many divisions in the church, and um, and I have just become convicted um, that this is one of the most damaging things to the body of Christ. And, um, you know, as a pastor and as a leader, we tend to get really focused on our ministries and how we're doing and how to build it better and how to make our churches better. And obviously, I think all of that's really important. Um, but if I just take a step back, I don't think it's that important compared to having true unity in the body of Christ. And that's because Biblically speaking, I think unity releases great anointing on the church, okay? And without unity, God will not anoint the church. That's what I think. I think that's how important unity is. I think it's one of two essential ingredients to see God move powerfully through the body of Christ, the other being holiness, right? I think if you don't have unity and holiness— then generally speaking, you won't see a great outpouring of the Spirit on the church, and that's what we need. Okay, we don't really need, you know, more money, better buildings, better equipment, more talented speakers. You know, we don't need that kind of stuff. That, In, in fact, I, I wouldn't even argue that's even second-level stuff. That's like way down the list of stuff that we really need. We really need the anointing and the grace of God. We need Him to pour out His Spirit. We need revival. All right, that is what the church needs. And a, a lot of times we're more focused on building our own kingdoms. We're focused on building our own ministries, our own churches, our own small groups, whatever. We're we're focused on that stuff and we're really missing the big picture. It doesn't matter, you know, how much God blesses our own ministries. That just impresses people, right? People are impressed by that. And as a leader, I can say it's really easy to get caught up in that, you know, for myself as well. Um, but if I, again, if I take a step back, what I could say is, no, we really need unity in the body of Christ so that God will give us a general outpouring of the Spirit. And um, this is something that's really close to the Lord's heart. God really wants this. I think if we're looking at all the things, what does God really want? I think he wants to see his people united. I think that is very close to the top of his list of the stuff that God wants. And if God wants it that bad, Shouldn't we want it that bad, right? And I think there's just a huge huge mismatch between where it is on God's priority list and where it tends to be on most Christians' priority list. 
Okay, and um, you know, I'm I'm not just saying that as an opinion. I'm saying that as I think it's pretty clear biblically speaking, right? When we talk about you know the Lord's Prayer, you know, we tend to think Matthew six around there. You know, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, and all of that. Um, and I think that's an important prayer. Many of us haven't memorized. But if we're actually talking about what the Lord's prayer is, like what his, the prayer of his heart is, I think we see that in John 17, okay? And in John 17, Jesus prays for the unity of his followers, okay? And I just want to read a section. This is from John 17, verse 20. Um, and to set up the context, this is right before he's about to go to the cross, and he's praying, and he prays for his disciples, his apostles first, and then he goes on here in verse 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And what I'd really like to point out in this passage is that Jesus, this is the prayer of his heart. He's, this is something he, he, he greatly desires, but he also links it to the effectiveness of our witness, the effectiveness of our preaching, of our ministry, right? We're only going to affect the world insofar as we have unity in the body of Christ. Meaning, if we are not united in the body of Christ, then we will not be able to convince the world that Jesus is the true Messiah, the one, the Savior of the world. We won't be able to convince them because our unity, our disunity, will betray our ability to do that, okay? And um, I think that's consistent with what Jesus says, you know, in other places, he says that they'll know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another, right? The way that we love one another will actually communicate the reality of who God is to the world. Meaning if the church is divided, we testify to the world that, that Jesus is not truly God, Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. That's what the scriptures are saying. All right. I think that, that I have found that absolutely to be true because our unity is our reflection of is God's love real? If God's love is real in our lives, if it has power, if it's meaningful to us, then the way that it manifests is by our ability to love one another. So if we're divided, we're really testifying to the world that God's love is not real right? It's not real enough for us to be able to love, all right? And that's why I think this is really such an incredibly important issue. It's not a side issue. I think this should be one of the main focuses of every single pastor, every single leader in the body of Christ should have some type of, of serious heart for the unity of the church, all right? In but we don't. <laughs> but we don't. I, I say that as, you know, as a leader who is, who's fought for unity for a long time now. Like, I got this conviction that God really desired unity when I was a student in college. And I remember when I was a student in college, 
I really tried to unite the campus fellowships at my school, right? We had, you know, I, was, I went to Berkeley. We had like, I don't know, 20, 30 something fellowships, Christian fellowships. And I was thinking, man, if we could just, if I could just get the body of Christ to pray together, if we could just pray together, maybe that would be the first step in having unity, right? And pursuing unity. And holy cow, the obstacles that, you know, that come up when you're just trying to get Christians to do stuff together are so crazy. And and look, I'll say this. I think actually the campus fellowships at Berkeley were more united um, than the church is in many other places. All right. And that's because at Berkeley, you know, the culture of the city is fairly hostile to Christianity. And that, you know, environment of hostility really causes Christians to band together more, generally speaking. Okay. Now Berkeley has its own problems. I mean, people in Berkeley are just offended about everything. <laughs> and and I, I think that's kind of true about the Christians too. So I'm not necessarily saying that it's the gold standard, but what I am saying is that my experience there really showed me just from the get-go how difficult it is, right, to get leaders to work together, to get leaders to um, collaborate and to cooperate. It's it's really so hard. It's so hard because um, of all the different areas of division. Now, and I want to talk about some of those, right? First and foremost is the, is the area of minor doctrine, okay, is the area of minor doctrine. We... Every, like if I always say this, if you stick 10 pastors in a room together and you ask them, you know, 10 different questions on minor doctrine, man, you are going to get answers all over the place. They're going to be all over the place because all pastors disagree on minor doctrine, right? It used to be that, you know, if you went to this school, this seminary, that you would largely kind of turn out with, you know, a certain set of doctrines, right? But I just feel like the internet has changed all that because, we're get, we're learning not just from our schools now. We're learning from all the stuff that's on the internet, right? The way that information has gone everywhere. So it's just simply not the same anymore. You know, you can have people that go to, um, you know, like a, a seriously reformed school, um, but they can arrive at a lot of different positions on a lot of different issues because they're learning from other books, they're learning from other stuff that they saw on the internet, they're learning from other arguments that they've seen online and on social media, right? Like this this is what happens. And so because of that, we have all kinds of different minor doctrine. And honestly, I, I, I think that's probably a good thing, all right? I think that's probably a good thing because the tendency for leaders is what happens is we get conviction on doctrine. Like we study the scripture and we're like praying for messages and God, you know, give me, you know, a heart for what you want me to teach my people. And then we we feel like we get something. We feel like we get a, some revelation, right, from some inspiration from the Lord. And we're teaching it with passion, hopefully. And naturally what that means is if you teach something with passion, well, if people are teaching the opposite of that, you know, you feel like they're hurting people, right? Because you, you're you here helping people with your minor doctrine, you know? And the people that are teaching the opposite, they must be hurting people with their minor doctrine. And I, look, I understand that. I understand that. And it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult because this naturally makes us kind of suspicious towards other leaders or other believers that believe different minor doctrine than us, right? And I'm just going to be honest, this is like a huge source of division, especially in, in amongst Protestants, right? Like, because this is what we do whenever we disagree on some type of minor doctrine with our leaders, 
we divide, right? And we go, you know, we start a new church, you know, and we, that's, this is why we have so many different denominations. And like, this is why, you know, the trendiest denomination is non-denominational, <laughs> right? Because then you don't have a, a denomination that, that's, you know, setting all these rules for you and stuff like that. The, the truth is this, we're all over the place on minor doctrine. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, to be clear, obviously, like, somebody's wrong, <laughs> right? If if somebody's teaching that women can be pastors and somebody's teaching that women cannot be pastors, right, somebody's wrong. It, it can't be both, right? <laughs> like, somebody's got to be wrong on that issue. And obviously, in the areas where we're wrong, that's going to have a negative effect on our church and our ministry. So I'm not trying to say that minor doctrine is unimportant, okay? I'm really not. What I am trying to say, though, is that What's missing from a lot of these battles in minor doctrine is humility. Like we have to have humility that all of us leaders and pastors and teachers and everything, we're all wrong on some stuff. Okay, we're all wrong on some stuff. When we get to heaven, you know, it, it, unless one of us just figured the Bible out. <laughs> you know, one of us did it. It's just the perfect theologian and nailed everything, you know. And then the... 0.1% of people that think like that person, they're all right on every single issue. You know what I mean? But the truth is, look, we're, we all have some stuff that we're wrong about. All right? We all have some stuff that we're wrong about. And we have to have humility about that. We have to have humility. And to be clear, we have to do need to make a distinction here between major and minor doctrine. All right? And this is another source of huge, of huge problems is that sometimes it's difficult to know which category to put those in, right? Which is a, a huge part of the problem. Like we could disagree on minor doctrine, but if one side feels like it's major, then it's not, you know, something that's okay to disagree about. It's something that we have to, you know, brand the other person as heretical about, you know, and, and just be real, that's a huge problem. Like that happens a good amount, okay? And to be fair to that side, I think that there are some issues that, pastors disagree about that are actually major doctrines and you know people are like oh no that's minor it's not a big deal and I would stand in the corner and be like no that's major we have to cut it off so I'm not saying that there's never a chance never a place to cut off and I'm not saying you know we should always try to be united with everyone who calls himself a Christian leader or Christian ministry I'm not saying that um, I'm saying our lack of clarity on where to draw these lines is one of the major problems in the body of Christ right now. It seems like there's so much confusion over where we should draw the lines from major versus minor doctrine, and then where we should be giving great grace and mercy to those whom we disagree on minor doctrine with. The idea here is that we have to honor them. All right, the second issue that's related, but that's not exactly the same, is different areas of emphasis, okay? Different areas of emphasis. And here's the paradigm that I have. The paradigm that I have is that in Ephesians 4, scriptures say that, that Jesus gave gifts to the church, and these are the fivefold ministers, the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists, okay? Generally speaking, most churches, in my opinion, are led by teachers and um, pastors, all right, by two of those fivefold ministries. Okay, most churches are led by teachers and pastors. All right, and and you can kind of tell because if a church really emphasizes the importance of doctrine and studying scripture and that type of thing, um, 
they tend, the leaders of those type of churches tend to be more teachers, okay? If the leaders of the church tend to emphasize how we really have to love one another and be merciful to one another and enjoy and fellowship with one another, those types of leaders tend to be pastors, okay? And already, you can see a difference between some of these churches. If you've if you've been to a number of churches, you can kind of tell some of the difference already between those two anointings, right? Like, you know, pastors are going to be much more inclined to be inclusive. They want everybody to feel safe, to feel loved, right? Um, and, you know, being at a church that's led by a pastor tends to be fairly enjoyable, right? It's like, hey, I feel safe here. I feel like people are loving. Like, this is great, right? Um, but the problem is that the, the leaders who are teachers oftentimes have a huge problem with those types of churches because they're like, man, they don't, they're not teaching God's standards between right and wrong. They're not teaching, you know, how important it is, the doctrine and how we have to, you know, cut out people who should not be in the church if they hold a certain doctrine, right? That's going to be the heart of teachers and then the heart of pastors. There's going to be differences. They're going to be like, man, those other churches that, you know, they're so rigid and so legalistic. And, and that's because a lot of times teachers tend to get more like that. Does that make sense? And these are only two of the fivefold anointings, and these are the most common ones that lead churches, right? And then you're getting into the other ones. Like, sometimes you have prophets that lead churches. Oftentimes prophets, you know, will lead non-churches, like more like prayer ministries or, you know, things like that. And, and some prophets are more like lone rangers and stuff like that. They're not like necessarily leading companies themselves, right? Um, but, you know, churches that are led by prophets tend to be weird, <laughs> right? They tend to get, focus a lot on getting personal revelation and encounters and visions and dreams and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and you can just guess how the churches led by teachers feel about those types of churches, <laughs> right? Like they don't like those types of churches because they're weird and they don't, they're not good on doctrine generally and, and all of that kind of stuff, right? And then you've got teach, and then you've got um, churches led by evangelists and those tend to be very evangelistic, right? Like they're getting their people like go out, share about Jesus, which is wonderful, but they tend to not, you know, do really deep discipleship with people. They tend to not really teach very carefully from the scriptures, right? And and again, I'm I'm generalizing here, okay? I'm not necessarily trying to say every single church fits into one of these categories perfectly, but I am saying that there is this type of dynamic in the church, okay? And then you have apostles, and apostles, you know, tend to be more missions mission oriented. So a lot of times they're leading missions organizations and stuff like that, okay? And and again, I'm just speaking generalities. You can have you have lots of apostles leading churches and leading other types of ministries and and, and vice versa. I'm just saying like the general anointing, this is kind of how it fits. And what I'm trying to paint is a picture of how these anointings are intended to work together. Okay, they're intended to work together. But because of division and disunity, what happens is churches tend to be very good at a couple different things and then really bad at a lot of other things, right? So the churches, you know, if you have a teacher leading a church, they tend to be pretty good about doctrine, about studying scripture, about being careful with the, the, the biblical texts. All of that's great and very important. They tend to be weaker about evangelizing, getting their people to minister effectively, hearing from the Lord, all that stuff that the other anointings are better at, they tend to be weaker at that. Does that make sense? 
And the way it's supposed to work is that the anointing is really supposed to be working together in collaboration with an appreciation and honor for one another. Okay? But because of the, the amount of division in the church, it's very rare. It's rare that, you know, at, a, at one church you'll find all of those anointings operating in a healthy manner in cooperation. It's extremely rare, okay? It's extremely rare. Um, and to be clear, I'm not necessarily saying that every church has to have all five of the fivefold per se. I, I think, you know, if you're a teacher, you can be leading a church. Um, but the important part is this, that you're empowering and honoring the other anointings and, and allowing them to minister. So, you know, you'll be inviting in more apostolic leaders to speak. You'll be inviting in, um, you know, prophetic leaders, or you'll be raising up, you know, and empowering, you know, leaders who are more prophetic in your congregation. And But, but just to be honest, that's very difficult. If you're more of a teacher, what tends to happen is you tend to be very suspicious towards people who are more prophetic, and they tend to feel very alienated, like they're not appreciated, and that's why they tend to leave and go somewhere where they're more appreciated. And if somebody who's more prophetic in nature, they're usually not going to be happy at churches that are just, you know, about teaching and, you know, and, and pastoral. Like, they're going to want to be at churches that are led more by, you know, prophets or apostles, you know, unless the the um, leaders who are teachers and pastors, you know, have some appreciation for the prophetic, and they, they have some wisdom experience to know how to lead and guide those people. Um, but just being honest, it's very rare because, again, of our incredible division. And this is what I'm getting at. What happens is, you know, for if if I'm a teacher, my heart is really for sound doctrine and all this kind of stuff. Um, and the danger is that what I can start to do is dishonor the other anointings, right? So how, like, they're not that important, right? I I hear that all the time. And just being real, like, if I could just be kind of honest and blunt, like, for example, um, John Piper, okay? John Piper is a phenomenal teacher, okay? Clearly an amazing teacher, right? And to his credit, you know, he's he talks about how, like, the gifts of the Spirit, you know, um, are for today. Because biblically speaking, in his exegesis of the relevant passages of, like, 1 Corinthians, you know, 12 to 14, he's going to say, yes, these gifts are for today. We need them. We should eagerly desire them. He says all the right things, which is actually very impressive to me that he says all that. But when I listen to a lot of his, his ministry, it doesn't seem like he's actually able to esteem, you know, the prophetic and esteem a lot of those gifts um, in a way that would cause them to thrive in his local church. And to be clear, I've never been to his local church, so I'm just really saying what it seems like to me, okay? Um, but that type of thing is very common. It's very common, right, for um, leaders you know, to have such a strong emphasis on their anointing in the areas where they're gifted and to start to dishonor other parts of the body, right? So, like, you know, a much worse version of that same thing would be John MacArthur, right, in my opinion, who, again, I think is a phenomenal teacher. Generally speaking, my paradigm is the Reformed movement has is, is very, uh, very much a teaching-led movement, okay? And um, John MacArthur, for example, like, believes the gifts are not for today, and he's, he's very dishonoring towards the gifts, okay, and towards charismatics and Pentecostals and, and all the rest of it. That would be an example to me of really sowing division in the body of Christ, okay? And now to be clear, if John MacArthur's right on this issue of doctrine, then I'm the one who's wrong, okay? Um, obviously, I don't think I'm wrong. I think he's the one who's wrong on this issue, okay? But what the way that I think is healthy here is when I talk about John MacArthur, John MacArthur probably thinks I'm like a heretic, 
right? Because I'm I'm charismatic and I'm Pentecostal and all that. Um, he probably thinks that I'm either a heretic or extremely, you know, um, immature, something like that. When I talk about John MacArthur, I always try and honor him, all right? I think he has produced a lot of good material, all right? I, I saw him. He went on TV, I remember, back 20 years ago now or something like that. And um, this was when, you know, um, there was all this debate about homosexuality and people were interviewing pastors and being like, you know, is homosexuality a sin? And I remember Joel Osteen went on like 60 Minutes and, man, he, in my opinion, did a terrible job. I mean, he's just like, well, you know, I'm not going to judge on that. You know, that's basically what he said. And, and to be fair, there's a lot of pastors who gave that kind of an answer, right, when asked that question. And um, and then John MacArthur went up there, and if you're familiar with him, you know that he he's not afraid of offending anybody, right? And he just let loose about how like you know this is a heinous sin in God's sight and all this kind of stuff, and just no fear of offense of offending others, no fear of um, no shame of of Jesus's commands in this area, right? Or, or the Scriptures commands in this area. And I remember I saw that interview, and I was like, thank God. I'm like, thank God. We have leaders like that who carry those types of strengths that we need. All right. Now, to be clear, if I went on 60 Minutes, I I probably wouldn't have said it like he did. Um, I But I am very appreciative for the way that he was very clear on the biblical standard. Right. That was so important. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is a phenomenal strength that he has. All right. And. When I speak about John MacArthur, what I do is I do try to honor him in the areas of his strengths, where he I feel like he is really contributing to the body of Christ, right? Because honoring him is essential to unity, in my opinion, even though I have serious, serious disagreements with him, even though I feel like he is doing a lot of damage to the body of Christ through, you know, the way that he condemns charismatics and the gifts of the Spirit and all of that kind of stuff— I have major disagreements. I see that as a weakness that he has, all right? But the point is this. I can talk about his weaknesses as long as I'm careful to emphasize his strengths and give him honor, right? That is my understanding of how to be united in the body of Christ, all right? And I teach the same thing when we're talking about gossip or slander of the church, right? I asked um, some of my students the other day, I was like, you know, say I I preach something um, and you think I'm wrong about what I preach, is it a sin for you to go, man, I did not like that sermon by Pastor Dennis. Is that is that wrong for you to do? And, um, you know, we had a good conversation with the students, but what I told them is that, no, that's not wrong for you to do. It's not wrong for you to say, I disagree with Pastor Dennis here. I don't think he's right about that. I don't even think it's wrong for you to be like, oh yeah, I, I don't agree with Pastor Dennis here, and I think that's actually one of his weaknesses, right? That he's an Arminian, <laughs> say for example, right? Like, he's an Arminian, I think that's a weakness, I think he's wrong on that area of doctrine, and that's why I disagreed with his message today. I don't think that's wrong for you to say, because it's important for us to be able to process through this type of stuff, okay? But what would be wrong is if I said, you know, I just think that you know, Pastor Dennis has a weakness here. He's an Arminian, and he's and because of that, he's a bad pastor. <laughs> right? Like now we're venturing into dishonor. Right now we're venturing into something that's really unhealthy. Because you could talk about other Christians' weaknesses so long as it's you have very clear strengths in mind when you're speaking about them. Does that make sense? Like President Trump is a great example. 
Okay, I've talked about you know former President Trump, and I think the man has incredible strengths. I think I don't I don't think anybody could have done as good a job as he did in his first term as president. All right, well in his only term as president, um, I don't think anybody could have done as good a job. Obviously, I think he did amazing. All right. Now that being said, I think he has tremendous weaknesses. <laughs> I think he has tremendous weaknesses. I do not. I don't have any confidence that he is a Christian or that he's going to heaven. Like, I can talk about both of those things, his strengths and his weaknesses. I can give him honor while criticizing him, right? And I think that is the that's the way to maintain some type of unity. Right? And to be clear, th- this is a, a different kind of thing because I'm not talking about Trump as a brother in Christ. Right? I'm just saying from this example how you can speak with honor about somebody even while you're pointing out their weaknesses and being like, hey, you shouldn't do this like, like Trump does. <laughs> right? Like, Don't do this. This is unhealthy. This is not good. But he has tremendous strengths in these areas. And I can be thankful for him right? Um, while recognizing his weaknesses and warning against them. And that's the difference. That is the difference. Okay, When we're thinking about other churches, about other ministries, about other leaders, about other Christians, right? Are we thinking about them with honor, right? Are we recognizing that their love for the Lord is genuine, that they're contributing to the body of Christ, all this kind of stuff? Or are we just looking at their weaknesses and then judging them on the basis of how we see their weaknesses and dishonoring them and telling people these people are dangerous, all that kind of stuff? That that is the type of stuff that is really dividing the church, in my opinion, okay, in my opinion. And again, I'm talking about in cases where we're actually talking about other brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not talking about heretical believers, those who claim to be Christian, but really are not Christian. I think the Bible does warn clearly about that. I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about, you know, differences minor differences in practice and in doctrine between real believers in Christ, okay? And this is where I'm very concerned about because this is so important. If we don't honor what other ministries, other churches, other leaders bring, then what's going to happen is we're not going to want to fellowship with them. We're not going to want to collaborate and work together with them. And then what happens is we get cut off from the graces that they carry. All right, and like I said, that to me is the story of of where most ministries and churches are at. Like when I visit churches, I can usually tell, wow, they're really strong in this particular area, but they're really weak in these other areas. All right, and I think that's just like the way that the body of Christ basically is these days. Right, where it's it's very rare to find churches that are strongly operating in three of the fivefold anointings or more. Very rare. Okay, and. And, and to be clear, I think it's very difficult to do that, okay? So I'm not trying to say, you know, we're all failures or something like that. I'm just saying, like, this is hard, okay? It's hard. But the point is I'm trying to paint a picture between where the church really should be and where we actually are, all right? And the next thing I really should do is is try and clarify where the major differences in the body of Christ are or should be. Okay, so I talked about how we we cannot divide over minor differences, and we need to show great honor towards others, other Christians um, who have minor differences with us. All right, and now let's talk about major differences. Okay, so the major differences are things like orthodox doctrine. Okay, and these really the most common areas where churches, ministries, 
pastors really start to get off on major doctrine, all right, um, is usually in the area of who is Jesus, all right, and who are saved. Okay, those are always the two issues. When I'm training students, you know, to go into a new area, if they're if they're going to college, say I'm sending high school students to college, right? I'm always going to train them on how to recognize cults. Okay, and the most common areas of theological difference between standard evangelical Christian groups and cults are in these two areas: who is Jesus, right, and who is saved. All right, Jesus has to be fully God, fully man. All right, and the only way to salvation. All right, those are like the three basic, you know, major tenets of the faith. All right, now to be clear, there's lots of other aspects of, of major doctrine. I'm not trying to say there isn't a lot of other, but I'm just saying if we're talking about most cults, they tend to err in these areas. All right, they'll teach, you know, Jesus is not fully God, right? He was a man, he was fully a man who, you know, he was a created being or something like that. Okay, now we're dealing with, with a major doctrinal difference here. Okay. Or they'll teach that Jesus um, was not man at all, that he was only God, right? And, and again, major doctrinal difference. Or they'll teach um, that Jesus is one way of salvation, right? But that there's other ways of salvation, okay? All of those types of differences, in my opinion, are major doctrinal differences, okay? And then the other side is who is saved? Who is saved, all right? The big red flag is when churches are teaching, you know, you're only saved if you go to our church. Right? Like all those other churches, they're not really saved. Okay, you're dealing with a cult at that point, all right? And and I always warn um, Christians because sometimes churches drift into that, right? When they start dishonoring other parts of the body more and more and more, then what happens is a lot of times they start drifting into cultish territory where they start going, oh yeah, those, you know, those Calvinists, you know, man, they, they teach such a, a skewed, view of God, you know, that, you know, you can never really be sure if a Calvinist is really saved. You have to check them on these things, you know, and, and what they're doing is now they're dishonoring huge segments of the body of Christ. And, um, and then what happens over time is that they can get narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And then after a while they're teaching, yeah, you can't really be confident. If you leave our church, you're probably not saved. You know, they start teaching that kind of stuff. That to me is, you know, they're really sliding into that, that, their their cult at that point, right? And and just being real, that's a real danger, all right? That's a real danger. I've seen that happen many times. Okay, so those are the major doctrinal differences that I just want to highlight. Obviously, there's a lot of other ones, right? We could just go through like the Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, right? And, and kind of break that down. But if we're just talking about the most common, you know, heretical teachings, all right, though, those, are, those are it, okay? Now, the second type of, you know, of heretical or major difference, okay, in my opinion, is can a person practice sin and be saved? Can a person practice sin and be saved? And this is the idea of teaching grace as a license for sin, all right? Teaching grace as a license for sin. And I believe this is what Jude warns about. This is what Second Peter 2 warns about, all right? These teachers who say, hey, we're covered by God's grace. You can't out-sin the grace of God. And so what you have is you have people who are practicing sin. And I always might try to make a distinction between stumbling in sin and practicing sin, okay? Stum everybody stumbles in sin, okay? There's grace for us. If we stumble in sin and we repent, we get back up, we start following the Lord, there's grace, I believe, okay? Even if we sin the same time seven times in the same day, 
and we come back and repent every time, I believe the Lord will forgive us, okay? But I do not believe there's grace for practicing sin. And that, you know, that's like, you know, you left your spouse for another person and you're living with that person. Okay, you're not stumbling in sin there, right? It's not like you messed up you and, and you repented and you're, you know, no, you're not repenting. That's the issue. You're living with that other person who is not your spouse and you did not get a sanctioned divorce, right? Like you are in sin. That person is not saved. That person is not saved, all right? And if they are recognized as upstanding members of a church and they are, you know, uh, there's no correction, I I think you're in very dangerous territory. And the place where I'm drawing the line these days at a lot of churches is if they teach that you can be practicing homosexual, right, and be saved and even be in leadership at the church. That to me is a, a major red flag. All right, and that's becoming more and more common, right? That you see at a lot of different churches now, right? That they're gay affirming churches. That to me, I'm sorry, that's a red line. Okay, that's a red line, where I'm like, I I will not fellowship, all right, with those churches that are gay affirming churches, and that's because I think that they have entered into that that heresy that the scriptures warn the New Testament. I'm not talking about you know Old Testament Mosaic law stuff. I'm talking about the New Testament warns about. All right, um, those would be some of the major differences that I see out there. Okay, and to be clear, um, in my in my paradigm, there there's extremes of legalism and there's extremes of lawlessness. Okay, and I mentioned extreme of legalism would be, hey, you're not saved if you don't go to our church, right? A lot of that kind of stuff. Okay, because you become really legalistic, and you and you know churches sometimes get like that. And that to me is an extreme of legalism. When you start teaching, oh, you're not saved if you don't go to our church, believe our exact doctrine, all that kind of stuff. All right. And then there's the extreme of lawlessness where it's like, oh yeah, you know, it doesn't matter what doctrine you have. It doesn't matter, you know, who you're living with or what kind of sin you're practicing. None of that matters. You're covered by the grace of Jesus, right? And you're saved and and we all love, you know, mother God. Right, that's kind of how the that tends to be. Okay, I think both of those are extremes that are now major differences, and I personally will not fellowship with those who are in either of those camps. And I think those are healthy divisions that we're supposed to have in the body of Christ. Okay, and to be clear, I'm criticized by both of those sides. Right, <laughs> I have been criticized many times by both of those sides. Okay, this is where I draw those lines. Okay, now, but what's important is if I've got believers that are not in those extremes, then I'm fully committed to unity with them. I'm fully committed to unity with them, even if we disagree on things that I consider pretty important, okay? And a good example is John MacArthur, all right? Like, I think it's pretty important. I think the gifts of the Spirit are pretty important. From In my perspective, John MacArthur is clearly um, teaching doctrine that is false and, and, and is contrary to scriptures, right? It says, do not despise prophecies, do not forbid tongues. I think John MacArthur is clearly breaking those commands. But that being said, all right, I think he contributes amazing, many amazing things to the body of Christ. And I'm thankful for him as a teacher. I'm thankful for him as a leader in the body of Christ, okay? Even if he doesn't consider me a brother, I consider him a brother, all right? And I think that's important. I think the 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 what I'm espousing this heart is so essential for the unity of the body of Christ, okay? I would, you know, 
do events with John MacArthur. I would go to events where John MacArthur is teaching. I would, you know, if we wanted to do a mass outreach together with John MacArthur's church, I'd be like, yes, let's do it. You know, insofar as I could possibly work with him, I would want to for the sake of unity in the body of Christ, for the sake of unity, right? Because I am convinced that this is something that Jesus is eagerly desires that he really wants the body of Christ to be united. Okay. When we're, when we're talking about communion, like Lou Engel, who I, I deeply admire has, you know, been talking about the great communion revival, right? When we're talking about communion, communion is all about unity, right? Communion is all about unity. It's, you know, the power of the, the sacraments is not in the ritual, all right? The power of baptism is not in getting dunked, okay? You can get dunked a million times. I know lots of people who are baptized that are not saved, all right? Getting dunked is not the core thing of importance, all right? It's what the ritual represents. The ritual of baptism represents death to self and now living for Christ, okay? I've died to my old life. I've died to sin, right? My life is no longer my own, and now I'm have a new life and I'm living for the kingdom of God. All right. That's what baptism is about. Okay. And the ritual is, is given to us to proclaim the importance of that truth that it represents. All right. And the same is true for communion. Communion, we take the body of Christ. We take his, his broken body in the bread and we take his blood in the wine and we drink it thereby declaring that we are one in Christ, that we have been bought with his body and his blood. We've been paid for, and because of that, we're one together, okay? And this is the significance of the Last Supper that Jesus had, right? He said, a new command I give to you, love one another. Greater man has no, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life. Right, for his brother. And that's that's the heart. That's Jesus' heart that we be one. Right? Because none of us earned this. None of us earned our salvation. None of us deserve it. Right? It was a gift given to us by Jesus who laid down his life for us. And so because he would forgive us of our sins, we must forgive our brothers and our sisters who sin against us. Right? That is what communion is all about. It's about unity. So we could talk all day long about communion and, and go through the ceremony a million times, take communion every single time, but that's not where the power is. The power isn't in the ritual. The power is in the practice of the truth, right? The practice of the truth is that we forgive those who sin against us, right? We let go of petty differences, right? We determine ourselves to, to honor our brothers and sisters, right? No matter what happens, we will be one. Why? Because our Father in heaven eagerly desires this. He greatly desires this. And in humility, I know that I have been forgiven of a great debt that I could never pay on my own, a great debt of sin. Therefore, of course, I must forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me in a much smaller way. That's what communion is all about. All right. If any, if, if you're at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. Go and be reconciled with your brother first. That is the emphasis that is put on unity. And that's this is what communion is all about. And I and I absolutely believe, you know, the prophetic words that are coming out about this stuff that Lou's giving and the others are giving, that communion is the secret that will release a great 
billion soul harvest, right? The great worldwide outpouring of the Spirit. Every single move of God is preceded by unity and prayer movements. It's it's holiness and unity. They go together. And we've got to have a move of unity, right, for us to receive the outpouring of the Spirit in our generation. We've got to have it. It's more important. It's more important than whatever church growth strategies are out there. It's more important than, you know, my church doing well. It's more important than any of that, right? And it starts with us being honest about what's in our hearts. Is there dishonor in my heart towards other believers? Is there hatred? Is there anger? Is there resentment? Is there, you know, do I not want to work with us because I don't see the benefit in it, right? Is there, you know... You know, C.S. Lewis says that the opposite of love is not hatred, it's apathy. And I think he's absolutely right about that a lot of times, right? That it's just a, a total apathy about the rest of the body of Christ. I don't care what they're doing. I'm doing my own thing, right? This is why prayer is so important. No, we're to pray for one another, to pray for the body of Christ, to pray for those whose ministries are, are somewhat different. You know, I, I remember um, um, a teaching that Rick Joyner had, I thought it was such a phenomenal teaching. I think he, he said that he had a, he had a vision, and the vision he saw a team of engineers and like they were working on like upholstery and you know, and then he saw another team of engineers and they were working on like sheet metal, and they saw another team of engineers they were working on like wiring and stuff like that, and it looked like all of these different teams were doing completely different things, right? But then the you know the camera went back and he saw the whole picture and they were all building a plane together, right? It was a huge plane. And they're all, they all have different specialties, and they're all, you know, working on different parts, but they're all essential towards the grand vision. And this is exactly how the church is to be, that we're to recognize that I'm only playing a small part. I am playing a small part in what God is doing, all right? And if, if I am successful, but my brother fails, but my, the other parts fail, we can't move forward. Right, we can't do this. Like, can you imagine a plane like, and and the guys who were making the wings failed? <laughs> right, like yeah, that ain't gonna work. Right, the guy that made the 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 landing gear, right, <laughs> he failed in his job. That ain't gonna work. It ain't gonna work unless every part does its part. Okay, and by the way, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Ephesians chapter four. Right, that Jesus gave gifts to the church, the apostles, prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists. Right for the building up of the body of Christ so that every part does its part every part of does its work does its labor so that the entire body grows into maturity into him who is the head who is Christ what he's saying is that it takes the unity of the leaders right the unity of the body right to grow into the perfect mature church that we are called to be all right and i do believe that this is Jesus' desire, his expectation. His expectation is that we become unified. I believe that Jesus is returning for a mature bride. Okay, this is a whole, you know, slightly different area of theology. I don't want to get into all the, the, the theology of this. But I'm just convinced that God's plan is that the church will become more and more glorious, will become more and more unified, will become more and more mature, and that um, over time, I believe this is happening. And so I have great hope. Even when I look around, I see there's so much you know, division in the body of Christ. I can say, like, I, I just have hope 
that we're going to be more and more united. And it really starts with just humility for us as believers. Humility for us, okay? Humility that we need the body of Christ. We need the leaders that are different from us, right? The churches that emphasize different biblical truths than the ones that we tend to emphasize in our ministry. We need those those leaders. We need what they're carrying, you know? And and look, just like all of us, all of us are broken, you know, all of us are immature compared to Jesus. So I'm not saying when you look at other parts of the body, you can't see immaturity. Okay, we're all immature. Of course, when you look, you're going to see immaturity, right? But the 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 heart of unity and the heart of what it means to be mature is to be able to find the maturity. Where's the maturity in the other churches, right? Where's the things that are honorable? Where's the, What's the good work that they're doing, right? And then to be thankful for it, right? And to honor them for it. This is the heart, um, I believe, of unity that the Lord desires to see in the church, okay? Um, and the, the last thing I'll say on this is that it's so important that we as leaders, but also just as, as, as Christians, that we learn to forgive fully, all right? Because what I've seen is this. Um, what I've seen is that you can forgive somebody like 20%. Or you can forgive somebody 80%. But what I've seen is that if you leave even, you know, 10% of resentment, 10% of unforgiveness, and you just leave it there, what happens is it becomes a cancer. It becomes a poison that really starts to color your theology. It starts to color your relationships. It starts to color all sorts of stuff in your life, right? And look, I've dealt a lot with forgiveness, so I know it's not as easy as just... You know, make the decision and it's done. That's not how this works, right? You got to fight for full heart forgiveness. You have to fight for full forgiveness. All right, and I say this because this is not, you know, this is not a test, you know, just for a couple people in the body of Christ. Every single believer in the body of Christ has to go through this process of maturation, and one of the keys to that process is forgiveness. And what it, what that means is you're going to face people wronging you. You're going to face hurt. You're going to face betrayal. You're going to face disappointment. You're going to face all of that stuff in your walk with the Lord. And you've got to fight for full heart forgiveness. All right. And sometimes that takes years, just being honest. All right. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes there's really traumatic events, abuse, all sorts of stuff that happens. And, you know, I'm, I've walked with a lot of people through a lot of this stuff. I know it's so difficult, but what I have to say is, You've got to fight for full heart forgiveness, even if it takes years, right? Don't let any lingering resentment, lingering bitterness remain in your heart. It will absolutely poison you. It'll poison you, right? Fight for full forgiveness until you get it, okay? And in that way, we learn how to become loving people, all right? This is this is the primary way that we learn to love, all right? Because the main thing that keeps us from being able to love is our fears of getting hurt again, our fears of, you know, of people betraying us again and doing all this kind of stuff again. And you fear those things if you're not fully healed from it, right? And the way to get fully healed from it is to fully forgive, all right? So that's just my final encouragement. Let me close in prayer. Father, I pray for everyone who's listening. God, I pray that you would give us your heart for unity, your longing for it. I pray that you'd impart your desire And Lord, I ask, oh God, that you'd give us grace to fully forgive everyone in the church who has hurt us, pastors, leaders, 
um, small group members, whomever, Lord God. So many people um, are still reeling from the pains of just relationship in the church. Father, I just pray for grace, for complete heart forgiveness, that you would make us one, oh God. Make us one so that the world may know that, Father, you sent Jesus, your Son, to save the world from its sins. We pray for that grace. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless.